Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Today, it's my distinct honor to welcome Kim Curtis to the show. Kim is a longtime expert in the field of personal finance. She's a speaker, author, and planner. And I'm so excited to have her on here because so much of what she says on her website and what I've got to know about her in just a few interactions, she leads with her heart also. She thinks about the psychology as much as the technical planning and tries to marry them together in a way that really is meaningful and helpful for clients. So I'm so happy to have her here today to learn more about her story and for us to inevitably find those shared connections of our our deep passion for helping people in a meaningful way around their personal finances. So Kim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ed. Happy to be here. I love your work that you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. You know, as we were getting started just before the recording, you said, oh, well, I've listened to a few episodes. I really like them. I said, well, what, what do you like about your heart? And I was like, oh, that's good. I'm glad that's coming through because that's intention, right? Is we want to not just have this personal finance thing be a cold, detached thing, but really to be reflective of the fullness of the human experience. So mm. Kim, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about kind of the big arc of your journey into this work? <laughs> big arc. Boy, isn't that true? I uh, actually have a legal background and I actually ended up in personal finance by a quiz, believe it or not. Um, okay. I had, you know, who hopefully most people have someone they know in human resources. And uh, I was at 30 in a life transition and took an HR quiz as to what would be that next profession. And it happened to be personal finance. And that was 30 years ago. And I've been doing it ever since. Wow. So, I mean, you were a grapple. (laughs) What I'm picking up on, because I, you know, something I've come to appreciate is how many of us grapple with major career transition points. And then there's everything that circulates around it. So tell us a little bit about life before this transition to financial services. What was happening? What was that initial thought? Sure. It was a Wonder Woman moment. (laughs) Hands on the hips and ready to go. Um, I actually had a really great uh, profession. I was a regional vice president of a national dispute resolution firm headquartered out of New York City. And they sent me to Salt Lake to open up a Salt Lake City office. And um, as I moved up in the organization, I no longer was in settlement conferences or uh, making a difference in terms of negotiations. I was actually a spokesperson. Uh, for Uh, alternative dispute resolution. So I was speaking to realtors groups and bankers associations and others. And I I felt like some of my passion was lost because I wasn't in the heart of the matter, as you mentioned earlier in the show. So at 30, I felt like I was entrepreneurial, but I wanted to be more entrepreneurial. And Uh that's kind of what that shift happened. And I'll be honest with you, Ed, I really thought with early success up to 30, that I could go into finance, personal finance, and knock it out of the park. I really believed it wouldn't take me long at all. I thought three to five years, this will be fantastic. 
and five years happened. And there I was, it's like not even close five. Okay. Five to seven years. Wait, 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 yeah. wait, seven to 10 years. This will, this will really make a difference. And, and what I mean by success is success is when you're paying yourself a wage that, that makes sense that you're actually making money because I was paying money to my team and I was the last to get paid. And so to be very candid, I really think, I believe it's like the seven to 10 year mark in, in entrepreneurial enterprises that it, it's about that time frame where you feel confident in who you are and what you're doing and where you're spending money and how to direct different choices that you make. And so that, that was my journey. <laughs> oh man, that resonates in such a deep way, right? Because I think there's, there are these kind of magical numbers that show up. Like there's a three year mark that seems to show up a lot of times where it's like, it, feels like things are really starting to come or come together. And then there's that seven to 10 year time window where it's like, okay, I've been actually making a little bit of money and now I really have a solid sense of who I am. And I know that's true for me. And, and honestly, you know, you're meeting me at a point of, of kind of transition. Some of the listeners know is I've worked as a couple therapist for the last eight years. Right. And so I finally kind of got into that sweet spot, making money effectiveness. And I was like, man, my heart, like I really miss financial planning and I want to bring these worlds together. And so here I have transitioned again into another entrepreneurial role and it's like, okay, got another three year mountain to climb to get the income going again. And, you know, in this next sense of professional identity, but I, I think talking about this helps normalize that journey for so many folks that feel like, well, maybe there's something wrong with me or I'm not doing it right. And it's like, no, it just, takes time in the seat and reflection and learning and meeting folks to grow into each of these pivots. Is that pivots what? a great word. And, and, and if you're lucky enough to have a, be in a relationship as a couple that they're harder because it's not just you and that decision-making. And that's really true around money. Oh, you know, yeah. when we think of money and financial planning and couples, it's, it's a, there are two in that conversation. And I think oftentimes we forget about that, whether it's us as the business owner or uh, not a business owner, but being in a couple relationship, entering a transition moment, like say retirement or job transition. Well, and that, that you know, is such the sense of financial planners and, and couples therapists often are working at, with people in points of major transition, right? And trying to help them smooth out that process as much as possible. And yet I think a lot about, in some ways it's like raising little kids and helping them learn to walk is you got to give them the scaffolding, but you also got to let them scrape their knees a little bit because that's part of how they learn to walk. And so, you know, what's that mix in financial planning and therapy is probably a little different, but you know. Well, yeah, you know, I have a 25 year old daughter yeah. and a 22 year old son, and we still say to them, make good choices. <laughs> You know, I think that's right. It seems like that's part of our whole ongoing life journey is trying to make good choices, trying to figure out what are good choices and, and kind of the, the rubric for that can evolve as we mature and change. What's a good choice in our two or three year old, uh, you know, I have a 12 year old, six and five year old. And so we got a whole different set of good choices that they're working on making, you know, so, you know, and at 40, I'm, continuing to say, well, what are good choices now? And and you raised such a valuable point. This is, you know, couples in the middle season of their life as they're taking stock and trying to reorient about, well, this career made sense at this point, but now it makes less sense for whatever reasons. You have to reevaluate together. And so when you're working with couples that are in that point of 
change and transition, whether it be into retirement or career, as a financial planner, how do you like to help them through that? Well, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, that path can be disrupted quite easily by a simple lack of communication. Oh, big time. And, And so... In the nature of my work, that simple lack of communication is we're we're often the bridge that allows for that communication to occur. Sometimes it's hard for one spouse to feel like they have voice Uh or that 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 voice can be heard. And so if you think about it, you know, if you think about transition and let's just say into retirement or any type of transition, the sale of a business or anything, um, it's often around health and finances. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We think of we and health is unusual that that is, but it is. I mean, that is like the number one thing. It's like, well, what about our health care, especially if the transition is before age sixty five when Medicare kicks in? but it's it's kind of like the initial question is, well, what how much do we need in the household for me to feel if you're the spouse not working, comfortable? And then uh-huh. in retirement, it's like, where will I live? Yeah. And then it and then it's also like what will I do? And then you forget, wait a second, there's someone else in this conversation. How would they answer those questions? Uh-huh. And I think yeah. that's really the root of the, the the conversation is we tend to approach it what we need, which is great, right. but to then allow for the other conversation to come in to create those joint collaborations. And when you have dual income couples, that is a lot harder. Because with dual income couples, no one wants to live the other person's dream. Does that mean that in your experience, when you're, you have a single income family, that there's a little bit more of one partner willing to trade or to, to trail the other person's dream? What, what does that mean in your experience of working you know, with? That's such a great, great point, Ed, because I think that the, the working spouse feels like they have more leverage but the non-working spouse actually feels that they're equal more often than not. So how do you bridge that to bring them both on the same page that they may have disparate goals and both are important? You know, the who am I, who are you, who are we? <laughs> Say those three again because that's, that's the heart of it in my book. Yes, I love this. Yeah. So the first question individually, who am I? And this is in any transitional point. Yes. Who are you? Yeah. And who are we together? And, and they, and to start with who are we together is a disservice. Say more about that. I I love where you're going with this, but I'm curious about how you think about it. Um, Yeah. You really want to give each couple, each individual member of the couple, a chance to have their own voice. And so if they don't know what they really want, maybe one of their, that they're a giver in the relationship. Uh, As givers, it's almost like pleasers. And yet they have very specific interests and concerns. And to not have that voiced as to who they are, they may not have had a chance to even think about who they are. To say, who am I? That may be the first time that they're saying, who am I? Because they feel like, wow, I haven't been asked that question. I'm a mother. I'm a spouse. I'm a daughter to my mother. You know, it's all of those things. And yet, who are they? Who are they individually? And I think that's really, 
the key piece and my legal background in negotiation mediation makes that really easy for me to hold that container to explore that conversation individually and then collectively because if you think about that next that next assessment is as couples what is that assessment together like the obvious one is where do they want to live but the other right. is you finally get a chance to do what's your passion and your purpose why are you here yeah. And each person is here individually and uniquely. Um, and for many, that last 30 years is the first time that they may have a chance to really develop that passion and purpose, uh, things that make them thrive and live and and feel like they're making an impact to the world. Um, and so it may be their last chance to finally go for it. Now, for our younger generations, they're already going for it. They saw us do it, me, particularly, and they don't want that. They really want more balance in their lives. And so the conversation for younger generations is very different, uh, and as couples is very different, especially their conversations around money, their conversations about uh, joint responsibility versus, say, a baby boomer woman that may have watched her mother or grandmother and so their role around money may not be as uh, integrated. Uh, there's so many layers that you're opening up right now. And it just has me beaming because I love it. Because there's so much rich richness in our lives and the layers of the way that we're working through all these things. And when you get to work with someone like Kim, who has thought through and worked on and noticed all these different dynamics, we have generational dynamics, we have developmental dynamics, we have gender stuff going on. like. It's all in the pot together as you're trying to help people facilitate through major life transitions or live with the transition that they've made, right? Because that's the beauty, I think, of comprehensive long-term financial planning is we get to enter into some transition point and then form the relationship to help them, but then to help them live comfortably with like, yeah, you've made it into it and here's the resources you have to support you. So when you have those moments of second guessing or doubting like, is this working out? It's like we can come back and look at the financial plan and say, yeah, look, it's working. It's okay. It's supporting you in this new way of living your life. And negotiating new, possibly negotiating new roles and identities. Oh, big So there's time. a lot going on emotionally and, and physically. Uh, you're negotiating intimacy. You're renegotiating roles and responsibilities. You're renegotiating perhaps location. You're renegotiating your obligations with children and grandchildren. Um, you're renegotiating basically everything for a successful, abundant next. Man. Tie a bow on it. I love it. It's all of it. So... <laughs> you know, let's, if you don't mind me, would you be willing to share what's the precursor? What was your childhood like with money and family? And how did that set the stage for some of the work that you're doing now in your life? That is such a fantastic question, because I certainly was not the money maven back in the day. I was my own crazy, chaotic person around money, like many listeners uh, out there. I, um, when my, when I was 14, my parents got divorced and my mom got full custody of three teenage daughters. I was the middle of the three and she had no employable skills. So she applied for and received government assisted lunches for us. And so I had this little red ticket that looked, honestly, it looked exactly like a raffle ticket 
We uh-huh. all know what those red raffle tickets look like. But in yeah. my world, that raffle ticket represented you're poor. Uh-huh. You're not enough. The shame around that was overwhelming because I had to hand that little ticket to the cashier at the lunch, li- you know, the lunch line every day. And so I'd go right. to the furthest line away uh-huh. from all my friends. I would grab my plate and I would pull that ticket out of my pocket and put it under my plate. And as I slid you know, down the, as you take that tray down the line, um, I would look behind me just to make sure none of my friends are nearby for me to actually have to hand that ticket. So, um, I, I went to college and went to law school and within six months after law school defaulted on my school loans. Like I had no business understanding, uh, what that meant what that meant to my credit report, what that meant to me as a person. I was completely unconscious around money and the implications of money in my life. And in today's dollars, that was probably, in today's dollars, it was about $92,000 of school loan debt. It was significant. Yeah. But Ed, I will tell you, I had uh, had a gift. Uh And that gift was an anonymous donor that paid $1,000 on my school loan debt. Now, imagine $1,000 today, you know, but to me back then, it was like a million dollars. I mean, it was, it was like, huge. made a huge difference. Yeah. Huge. Yeah, and the yeah. fact that that I was unconscious around money and that I opened the statement to recognize that it went down $1,000 was in itself a miracle. One of the things I say all the time is how you do money is how you do life. Yes. And if your uh-huh. head is in the sand on money, trust me, it's in the sand on other areas of your life. Oh, yeah. And so yeah. that gift, because it was anonymous, I couldn't go, what do you see in me? Or what do you want? Right. <laughs> I truly yeah. had to have those questions with myself. <laughs> yeah, love it. Yeah. So the who am I? Who do I want to be? What is it that they see in me that I don't see in myself? And I have to tell you, Ed, it was almost like a snap when I asked those questions because then I became conscious and aware. I was, for the first time, aware. And what I hear in that, Kim, are those self-reflective questions, right? That you're asking yourself, you're starting to ask yourself these self-reflective questions that start to open up. Yeah, That's exactly what happened. Uh, that, That it opened up, and I have to say that because of the gift, the gift to me felt like, an act of love. Uh And that act of love in asking the questions to myself, all of a sudden I realized that I needed to respect myself. I one aware and then respect myself. And as a result, I think that what naturally happened in that moment, that it was more like, okay, who do I want to be? Events in my past have happened to me that I didn't necessarily feel like I had control over, but I do have control from this point forward of the decisions that I'm going to make, and I'm going to hopefully have different outcomes. So it gets back to choices. What choices am I going to make today moving forward to give me different outcomes? And from that point forward, it was a journey. Honestly, it was, you know, and the fact that I'm in finance today and the CEO (laughs) of a wealth, a a boutique wealth management firm that's very successful is shocking, but it was deliberate next step, next step, next step with knowing that I'm in control of my outcomes. And, you know, so there was a breakthrough of awareness. And then I think after that, it was, I had a vision of who I wanted to be 
And that vision was enough most of the time to keep me making right choices as I move forward. I don't have a therapy background, so that just is my own story. (laughs) No, I love it. And I think, you know, what I, I don't know about the train of attorneys, but my general sense is that they become very good questioners. Part of the, the training of being a, good, a great attorney is learning how to ask really great questions. I mean, yeah, you got to know, like, you got to know the law. Knowing the law is secondary to being able to ask really good questions of the law and of the people that are trying to use the law and interpret it. So it's, I think that fundamental skill of being, and it's not reserved for attorneys or therapists. His fundamental to being humans is we when we can tap into asking really good questions, our lives change and it's not a overnight sensation like you had that moment like i got the thousand dollar relief i started asking these questions and next year i was a wealthy attorney (laughs) no but you know like it sets you on this trajectory that now at this season of your life you can look back and look like wow i came from this place with a mother who went through a divorce at my age 14 and had to sign up for food stamps to now I run a very successful wealth management boutique firm and I get to help countless other clients in their own financial journey and transformation. And, you know, I think the more time I spend doing this work and the more time I get to spend meeting folks like yourself is I realize so many of us in this personal finance space have some story of pain and challenge around money. And we ultimately find our way into financial planning as a way of trying to gain mastery and insight and perspective Mm -hmm. on money. Like our profession allows us to do that if we are paying attention. That doesn't mean all financial planners are sorting through all that and figuring that out, but there's a good number of us that are like leveraging our job to help us make sense of and and create a better outcome than where we started. I know that's true for me too. Mm, I love that to create better outcomes because our job is to not spill into the room our stuff. Our job is to hold that container Right. So if we kind of know what we've been through, it's easier to hold the container without putting our stuff into the room right. uh, and leading it in a way that there's safety and trust and all the things that we need necessary to have those successful outcomes. So, you know, I think that that the role of my firm, Wealth Legacy Institute, and how I created it, I created it because I wanted to create a firm filled with humanity. Yeah, a firm that put clients first, not last. Mm-hmm. Um, and the nature of financial services, oftentimes the client is last, uh, depending on the structure of that firm. And I think it's important for clients to recognize that there are different types of firms, and you really want to end up with a firm that's more like a CPA firm, that actually is a fiduciary all the time. And yes. so that word has been bandered about, so it's now blurred with the SEC and the Department of Labor. But I think it's so important for us as practitioners to show up in a way that gives the client complete trust in who we are and what our role is for them to get from point A to B all the way to Z. All the way to Z, not just when they have a transition and step off. Right. Um, I wrote two books, uh, both, both bestsellers, and one is Money Secrets, Keys to Smart Investing. And it's a great book. I won four book awards. And it pulls back the curtain on the financial services industry to reveal why smart people make bad investment mistakes. And the second book, Retirement Secrets, Keys to Retiring Happy, Healthy, and Free, is I had, in a matter of two months, Ed, 
clients ask me that, that, you know, save, save, save finally can step off. And it was like, well, is there any book that you have for like how to live in retirement? And believe (laughs) it or not, I did not have an answer. And so the data geek in me, of course, researcher had to go and buy all these books and read them. And I have to tell you, most of them were terrible, (laughs) terrible, but there was one that actually had potential, but it was written horribly. It was Uh not well-written. Of course, with a legal background, it's easy to say that, but so I pretty much wrote this book on, okay, you're finally stepping off. What are the decisions that you have to make and how do you live it successful and vibrant and free through those next 30 years? And that's why I was able to understand like the couple's assessment quiz or understanding the difference that couples have and what they have to navigate through. And then Uh what are the keys for success once you finally step off? And and this is a new conversation because, you know, my great grandfather didn't have a life of having to worry about what's next because they stepped off and then died. Right. (laughs) But to have a lifestyle that you can do things. Yeah, exactly. So um, that's what created this book. And this book really is lifestyle. Yeah. It's all about lifestyle. Questions Mm. on how do you find your purpose? What makes your heart sing? There are over 500 activities inside that book called Retirement Mapping Profile that Uh you could like, you may have a hobby that you have done when you were a kid, like putting trains together or something that you lost track of and you love trains. Oh, yeah. And it brings back, it helps bring back ideas. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. I love this. And, you know, for me and my understanding of kind of some of the developmental psychology literature is that's a big part of adult maturation is being able to reclaim things that you had to set aside in childhood for any number of reasons that were meaningful. Right? as adults, we, we often lose track of how to play, especially as professional mm-hmm. series. Type, right. And so going back and finding those passions, um, you know, I have a few that are, Kind of latent, you know, I played clarinet as a kid and a few years back I was in an environment where I saw an adult playing a clarinet and I thought, man, what would it be like? And it hasn't fully matured yet, but I, I imagine there might be a time when I go back to doing that and experimenting and um, just have gone back. And I love that. I, I would encourage you to play with that idea. Yeah. I would encourage right? you, Ed, to take out that clarinet and just mess around with it. I might, you know what? I might have to just hop on and buy. I don't even have a clarinet. I don't, know, you know, but I'm sure I can find one for a reasonable price and just get one and just start to play with it. Because, you know, I think these, as kids, we're so open to the full sensory experience. And so many of us as adults, we start to kind of numb and constrict our multiple sensory experience to fit into these tight little professional identities and roles. 
and it becomes a straight jacket. And I think this is, sorry for the euphemistic term, but that's where we go crazy and act out yeah. and do yeah. things that we're later embarrassed about when we're not able to be fully connected to our authentic self. And so I think, you know, such a large part of our work as planners is helping people reclaim and continue to expand into the fullness of, of humanity, right? Human-centered financial planning. Who are you really? You, That's you, right. And don't wait. Don't, don't wait. wait. Yes. Yes. I mean, to pull out that clarinet or to buy one, a used one online to yeah. play it, and you'll know right away whether you, your heart sings or, oh, that was fun when I did it back then. And that's you know, what it's all about. That's all it is in life is, is yeah. that we never fail. We, we, just, we just have a better understanding of what's next. You know, this, it's, so we were talking before we started this recording today, but I'm just back from a big family trip to Northern California and thinking about like knowing that a live feeling is, uh, I went to the Santa Cruz Beach mm-hmm. Boardwalk and like, this was a, an epitome place as a kid, you know, it was a couple hours from where I live and to add boot, I got to go back to it and meet an old high school friend there who now has kids. Right. And so we didn't go there as teenagers. We went to Disneyland on church, whatever, but being there, she's like, yeah, let's meet at the bumper cars. And I was like, yeah, let's meet at the bumper cars. And honestly, I got there, came to the music park and I knew exactly how to get there. And my wife was like, where are you going? How do you know? And I'm like, I just knew inside of me. I hadn't been there in I don't know, 30 years, but I think those, right. Those deep, meaningful things are still inside of us. Even if we've forgotten them, if we take time to reflect and open up. So when you're working with clients, what happens for you when you see clients start to kind of have these aha and openings? What do you, how do you see their lives change? Well, I, before I answer that, I, I have goosebumps because that boardwalk, I still have visuals of the aerial tram and having one of those mannequins on the aerial tram. <laughs> I'm going, is that a person dressed like that? Oh, wait, that's a mannequin. <laughs> so I love that place. They're like Susical characters. What's so, okay, so let's sidebar here. Tell me about your connection to the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. You know, I live in Denver and I'm a water girl. I'm a water girl. And my last memory, actually, that's not true. I've been there several times since. But I have a really great memory of uh, taking my daughter to visit California colleges. Oh, uh-huh. uh-huh. And after visiting one of them, we went to Santa Cruz. And I remember seeing my daughter looking out into the water. Oh, and knowing uh-huh. that her future is in front of her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it wasn't in the summer. It was early spring. So there wasn't a lot of people on the beach. There's hardly anyone on the beach. But it was just such a memory of joy. When you see youth launch, that's always joy. (laughs) You know, I I live on the side of imagining what that's like. Right? I'm I'm not Mm. quite there in that season of life. I hear other adults that have crossed that threshold of truly launching their young adult kids from high school into college or beyond and I, I see these types of reactions and I just can only imagine what that's going to be like. I only have a small taste with the small the much smaller launches of from elementary school to middle school, from preschool to <laughs> you know, they're not the same as launching from high school to college as far as I can tell. It's a bigger impact. But yeah, wow, what a cool experience. Yes. I'm a little sensitive to it today because in two weeks my son graduates from college. 
And that is like where your, your chest just busts open with joy because as a, as a parent, if you're lucky enough to have your kid go to college and to see that, um, it just is kind of like, okay, it's not like your job's done, but you feel like your job is relatively <laughs> that you've done what your responsibility is to you and your values and your goals, whatever those are for you. And so for us, that was a value that was very important. And that comes back to, you know, we take on stuff that around money, that's yeah. not us. You know, that value of getting an education was my mother's yeah. because she said to three daughters, go back to school to get your education because guess what? No one can take it away from you. And that's what happened to her. She, she didn't graduate because my father got drafted in the war and they married early and then they moved to New York. So she didn't finish high school and that's why she had no employable skills after a, a divorce. So it's interesting when we think about money, how we show up around money and whether the value is yours or generationally something that's been handed down and you've, you're living it, but you haven't made the decision of whether that's your value or not. Oh. And I think we mess up a lot when it comes to money, why we act a certain way. There, this is a, such a deep place and it's so important for listeners to tune back in. If, if you've kind of drifted off in your mind to come back to what Kim's talking about right now is we inherit these money values. Oftentimes the one of like get a education, you know, and from your story, because I didn't, you, you should. Right. And that, that's a, somebody else's value being implanted. And that's pretty not natural. That's part of the human experience is we absorb these values but part of maturing is really being able to say, is this a value I want to hold for myself and make it truly my own? Or do I need to let it go so that I can move forward, right? And so uh, it sounds like for you and for many folks, they do take on and say, yeah, no, this is a value I want to have for myself also, right? But I, you've probably worked with them as well, but there's a number of parents that have this kind of pressure around getting their kids into college because of some family legacy, not because it's what's right for the child or, or even them and where they're going because college is great and it's wonderful and it's good, but it's not necessary for everyone and finding some flexibility. Yeah. Uh, and so many things are in disruption right now. The value yeah. equation that was back then is a different conversation today. Just like financial advice is a different conversation than it was back then. Uh, so it's important as individuals to recognize that we are in enormous disruption with technology and artificial intelligence and everything else that to be flexible enough around change instead of a fixed mindset, that if you're flexible and have this growth mindset, I think it'll just make life so much easier as we transition into different events of our own lives. Yeah. And I think you know, that one of the frameworks I come back to in my mind is finding that the flexible is kind of the middle place, right? Between rigidity and chaos, mm. right? And because I think the other side, <laughs> of, true. Uh, the other side of rigidity is chaos. And it's like, oh my God, the world is changing so much. Ah, I'm just all over the place about it, right? Like I, I can't influence or shape it. I'm just... And it's like, no, you can still continue to influence the direction of your life. Even though there's massive change underway and much of it we don't even fully understand yet. We'll only understand in the rear view its real impact. But that's okay. 
humanity has been living with change from the beginning of time, as far as I can tell. So what those changes are, but the, the core needs of being a human and having meaning and purpose are unchanged, despite what the external changes are. I love that. That's great. You know, I think that this whole conversation that we've had, Ed, around this journey of financial success and how the listeners can take our stories and turn it into something useful and, and have financial success and aliveness and abundance and joy. And that, that really comes from understanding money. And, and I, I, I think that what I've learned through the years over the last three decades is that when people say, I need money, I need money, I need money. Well, you will always need money if you keep saying you need money. And what I've discovered is it's quite the opposite, that actually money needs you and that money is looking for you. And what I just said is really deep, actually. And if the listeners can hear that again, is that money is looking for you. Because money by itself has no value. It's just a tool. It only has the value we put, we give it. So money to become something, yeah, needs your ideas, your vision, your values, your imagination, your curiosity uh, to become something of use to the world. So, Ed, I grew up in New York in the Buffalo area. So I have where the vast Niagara Falls is. Yes. And you have the Canadian border and you have the state of New York. Yeah. So back in the day, beautiful Niagara Falls uh, yeah. actually powered a lot of New York State's electricity. Sure. But it wasn't the falls that did it. It was the power plants that lined its banks to turn it into something like yeah. electricity. Yeah. Yes, right. That's the same with money. Money needs your ideas, your imagination, your values, your creativity to turn it into something to become of use to the world. It's the same. I love that because I think that, right, this is where so many of us, myself included, I've got caught on this hook more times than I care to admit to is, um, how do I say, money is evil or not good or bad, right? We, we, the negative projections onto money. And, you know, your point reminds me that money is kind of a neutral object until we meet it and put it to use. And it's who we are and how we show up with it that matters. It's not money's innate nature to be good or bad it's the humans that use it that push it on that moral continuum that we're constantly evaluating what's right or good that's exactly right Uh, that's actually a really good point to understand because that you know like when i'm working with couples often one of the places they get stuck is they get stuck in moral moral arguments over, over about what's good or bad use of money you know it's it kind of stems from like, well, it's better to go on vacation than it is to furnish the home. And they'll take a moral position that there's something inherently more valuable about being on a family vacation than having a home furnished that creates meaning in a a sanctuary, if you will. And it's like, they're just different. You know, they have, they take on different meaning for each of you. And so, you know, when couples start to take moral high ground on things, it's really alienates financial intimacy for them. I think that they mistake the purpose of money, like you just said. To put a value of money being evil or whatever, uh, I would want to unpack that 
that where that comes from, which we kind of can guess where some of that comes from. Um, But to then unleash that to go, no, it's the people's, the values that make it that, what is it that makes you think that is evil? And then turn that into a productive statement to allow yourself to turn it into something that helps your family and is used to the people around you and to the greater good of others. Mm. <laughs> what are you thinking? <laughs> yeah. Bringing it back. I appreciate you letting me make some of this conversation about me. I feel like, you know, as a podcast host and the therapist in me is always like, no, you got to always make it about the other person. And so it's like, when I start to make things about me, I get self-conscious, but no, I was thinking about like that meaning and money and just coming again, I'm referencing the family vacation because it's just so top of mind for me, but it, you know, looking at my, my own life outcome with money, my brother's lifetime outcome with money up to this point, and the story's not done, right? It's still unfolding. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. even saying that helps me remember like, just because of what's happened in the past doesn't have to foretell what will happen in the future. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's right that the meaning of money, the meaning of what's happened in the past can over forecast what it will happen in the future. And it's uh, you know, what's the phrase we say in the investing world, past performance is not a guarantee of future performance. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, and the other thing is if you're unpacking kind of generational family stories is, is to think back at, during your childhood and how did your family spend money? Did they spend it on themselves joyfully or was it struggle? Mm -hmm. And if it was struggle, then that's something you need to think about and unpack because that's from a a place of scarcity, not abundance. And money should be joyful. Money should be life affirming the things that matter to you in a way that is useful and productive, that creates aliveness. And we talked about this and joy and, and prosperity. And so if you can ask that, how did your family show up around money? Did they talk about it? Was it a struggle or did they spend money on family vacations that provided joy? Or did they allow themselves the pleasure to use money for good? You know, it's funny. I I feel like I need to go back and just ask my folks directly because as we're talking about this and I'm thinking about it, I think it certainly wasn't overt displeasure, but it was kind of this neutrality it wasn't there wasn't it wasn't necessarily this great sense of pride wow i'm so proud of us for saving this money well hold on let me correct Uh, sorry memories are coming up the trip to hawaii the family trip to hawaii when i was 16 that probably was like a little more pointed to a source of pride that we had saved money to go as a family to hawaii but family vacations are so meaningful and money is so interwoven into that. And the, the, the feeling of paying for family vacation and what that evokes is such a big deal. And, you know, when it's, when things are going well and healthy and in good perspective, it can be a great source of pride and meaning and direction. But there's, I've heard countless stories of people hearing their parents argue and fight and bicker over how much money is being spent, how much the trip costs or how much you kids cost, or that can leave such a negative taste. And that's something you got to unpack and work through. So you can get to the other side of being able to enjoy family vacation. 
Before we wrap up, because uh, I know we're getting close, as you shared with me earlier, I do want to share one thing that helps bring in what you just suggested as it relates to family and vacations and so forth. I think when I, when I describe money as looking for you, it's important to also understand that there are two laws of money. Yes. And the first law of money, the human-made law and natural law. Ooh. Those are the two laws of money. The human-made law is what I do, what you do as practitioners in financial planning. It's linear, it's goals-based for end result. Yes, right. The natural money laws are not linear, it's more heartfelt. And Mm -hmm. so some natural money laws, which are already inside of us, we we are innately have these laws inside of us, but we've lost track because of technology and society and so forth. But giving and receiving, and both need to be in balance. In balance, giving and receiving in balance, but also human-made and natural money laws in balance. But we start with the natural money laws. And if you can connect your natural money laws with an abundant mindset versus scarcity, giving and receiving, cause and effect, supply and demand, intention and desire, ebb and flow, we tend to think when money is ebbing, it doesn't feel good. But yet if we use the ebb, just like nature, or just like when we go to sleep at night, Right. That it needs to ebb so it can flow again. Yeah. And then, of course, clear agreements with yourself, because it's always an inside job around money. It's not an outside job. It's an inside job, which I demonstrated from my story. But yes. if we have clear agreements with ourself, self-respect first, so that we can give it to others, then, right. then we're in alignment. And so yeah. all the conversation that we had today, by understanding those two money laws, and it starts with the natural money laws that you already have inside of you. And as women that are listening to this podcast, the human-made laws may not be magnetically attractive because we've been socialized and culture and we couldn't even vote until, you know, not that long ago um, or have the right to have access to money, that the natural money laws are inherently part of who we are. And financial planning is really starts with the natural money laws. The investments are the human Right. But if we understand that and then be able to bridge it, all of a sudden we're able to get to a place that is uniquely beautiful for who you are and who your family is. So in the nature of my work, if you have a pyramid and there are four steps in the pyramid, people come to us because they want to have their money managed. It's our job to tie it to a financial plan because you need both in balance. Right. You need both in balance because one is linear and the other is heartfelt, the plan. Right. When you get to that point, you're able to have the third is lifestyle. All of a sudden, money is frenetic. We've just put money down as a foundational piece so that they have room to breathe, which gives them peace of mind. When you have room to breathe and have peace of mind and money is your foundation and not swirling around you, the pinnacle of that pyramid is impact. Mm. We are all here on this planet uniquely for a purpose and no one else can be you and if you can have lucky enough to find out what that joy is at the top of that pinnacle and create impact or legacy or fulfillment whatever word works for you then you've just lived a life well lived and that's what we do and that's why it's fun to do what we do because we could do that every day all day long it's regenerative it's natural it's self-generating right it's you don't have to will yourself into going into work every day when you're in that impact and knowing you're looking at your purpose. Kim, uh, I'm just... And therefore money finds you. 
Oh. Full circle. This conversation has blown me away in the best sense of the term and has been such an absolute delight to have you. And I fully know we will be having more conversations as time unfolds because you know, it, it's for me, I, I often think about it, it's like into complexity and back into simplicity, into complexity, back into simplicity. And there's so many things, so many more things I want to ask you about and hear your thoughts on. And yet, you know, I want to end this beautiful conversation with what you've, you've just said is that that triangle and that building ultimately into impact. That's That's what it's about. Kim, if people want to find out more about your books, more about the work that you're doing, where's the best place for them to find you? Yes, uh, wealthlegacyinstitute.com and Financial Literacy Press, financialliteracypress.com. Ed, we have some free things that uh, some listeners can go to. Like we have the 10 laws of money every investor should know. We have an aging parent checklist that is 26 plus pages that helps people understand some of those steps that they need to do. Um, And that's really powerful. And there's some other things. So financialliteracypress.com. And then lastly, Kim Curtis YouTube, we do a lot of wealth casts on different topics that are short videos, depending on, you know, is now a time to buy a car or different types of uh, helpful, useful things. Love it. Kim, thank you so much for the generosity of your time and for a life well lived and so much more to, to come. I love it. Thank you, Ed, for having me. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Mm-hmm.